This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Yeah, good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Alexandra Noy. I am a PhD student at the Department of History here at UC Santa Barbara. And it is my great pleasure to introduce to you uh, Mariana Yarovska, uh, director of the documentary Women of the Gulag, and Paul Gregory, author of the book of the same name. Nice to see you tonight. Um, thank you for having me. I would like to thank you, Mariana, for this uh, powerful documentary film. And thank you, Paul, for this very important book on this topic. And I think they complement each other very well. So my first question to both of you, um, how did this project, the book and the film begin? Maybe, Paul, you can uh, start first to talk about the book. Uh, yes. I have worked on the history of the Gulag for, I'd say, 15 years. Uh, in the course of this, I became acquainted with uh, massive documentary evidence on the Gulag. For example, Hoover Institution has the full archive of the Gulag administration. Uh, so I wrote a number of uh, scholarly books, but um, as I studied further, I thought that I was missing the human element. And that's the reason why I turned to this format uh, of a book which was eventually called Women of the Gulag, because uh, as Stalin is purported to have said, the death of one person is a tragedy, the death of a million is a statistic. I felt that I'd spent a lot of time working on the statistic, but not enough time working on the person. Uh, so um, my uh, goal was to find a number of uh, gulag uh, prisoners uh, who um, left behind a good record of their life so that I could uh, turn this into a book. And at that point, that's when Mariana and I got, got together, so Mariana might tell that story. Um, I was in Moscow and I was uh, working on 20 videos for the first Moscow Museum of Holocaust, which is, you know, it was called Museum of Tolerance. And it was the largest museum of um, Holocaust in the world, in fact. And um, when I returned uh, from Moscow, I was flying uh, to New York. And I thought that it was strange. It was 2011. That's how long ago it was. I thought it was strange that Russia has now the largest in the world Holocaust museum, but didn't really have a museum of Gulag. And uh, it did, in fact, but it was just two rooms um, very small, and uh, they didn't have many artifacts. They just had a, a video, BBC film on showing on a loop. And so I thought of a grand project, something like what Spielberg did with Shaw, interviewing the last survivors. Of course, thought grand. And um, uh, when I met Paul accidentally, it was, I think, a conference at Stanford. Um, he suggested that I narrow the task down that I don't don't go so big. And uh, he said, how about I write a book and you make a movie? And so it took Paul one uh, year to write the book and it took me almost seven years to make a film. Uh, this is actually the book. And uh, the pictures um, on the cover are some of the pictures that 
we took during filming. So some of his characters are in the film and some of our characters ended up in the book. I called, you know, we call it uh, transmedia or cross-platform because nothing is based on anything. It's just complements each other. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and um, I'm wondering how these two approaches in the book and in the film, these two approaches to present the memory of Stalinist repression are different or maybe similar? Well, as, as you've noticed, uh, the my book, Women of the Gulag, takes place at two levels. One is at the victim level. The other is at the uh, uh, repressor level. So I wanted to show how decisions being made in Moscow and Stalin's dacha or in Stalin's office filtered down to the victims. It sort of gave you a premonition of what was going to happen to these characters. So it's a combination of history and then personal storytelling, uh, which uh, left us with uh, an important decision to make, which was how much of the official side of the gulag are we going to put in this and how much of the personal side we're going to put in this. And that was the most difficult decision that we had to make. And Mariana can tell you how we came down. Uh, when we were at uh, Stanford, uh, Paul introduced me to Anne Applebaum. I have a bunch of books here. So she's, um, she wrote this big book called uh, Gulag, and which won a Pulitzer Prize a um, number of years ago. And uh, we interviewed Anne and we interviewed a number of some of the biggest experts on Gulag on the planet, you know, so Russian um, uh, professors, you know, the, the Dean of History Department at Moscow State University, Robert Service, who teaches, who is a professor emeritus at, at Oxford. So we had all these incredible um, experts and uh, we cut them all out. Because I think in the film, um, film speaks to the soul, right? And speaks, the story has to touch the heart. And so we just left the eyewitnesses in, um, that, that actually sat in the gulag, that spent time in prison. Not their children, not their relatives, but the actual last witnesses. And they were last because out of our six characters, only one is still alive. Yeah, thank you for that. And... Um... My next question to both of you is actually uh, more about the structure of both the book and the film. Um, and I actually felt when I was reading the book and watching the movie that they were very personal, they were very immersive. Um, but both of you uh, were interweaving personal stories of suffering into a larger narrative about the Stalinist terror. So Poe's book actually shuttles between individual stories and chapters uh, about Stalin and his henchmen who were the main perpetrators of the terror. And Mariana's film also interviews uh, female voices with family photographs, documentary sequences, and shots of contemporary scenes to show this larger um, historical picture. So I wonder if you could uh, speak a little bit more about the structure. Uh, how did you construct the narrative in the book and in the film? Mariana, that's yours. <laughs> um well, uh, any film, when you make a film, is written three times. First time when you're about to make a film and you think of an idea before you go anywhere. Second time when you're actually filming it and you realize that what people are telling you is not necessarily what you expected them to tell you. And third time when you come back with all the footage and you sit down with a brilliant editor and he says it just what you wanted to tell 
in the beginning and what you thought they were telling you in the middle is not working. This is a different story. So um, we told it chronologically, you know, it's, it's a very uh, classic. I think when in doubt how to tell a story, I think uh, the simplest answer is always um, the, the best answer. You can break the rules afterwards, but you first you, you, you build the narrative so that it's clear to anybody. Anybody who doesn't know what Gulag is, anybody who doesn't know anything about these people, that they understand the story. So um, we structured it the same way as Solzhenitsyn structured his Gulag archipelago, you know, from the peaceful life to arrest of the parents and execution of the parents to their um, arrest, their interrogation, the prison, the transportation, the camps, the release, the, the life after the release um, in, the, uh, in exile, and then the afterwards, the current day. So we just did a very, very simple uh, thing, simple solution, which worked. I must say that the structure that Mariana just described is basically also the structure of the book. That is normal life, arrest, incarceration, return to normal life. And I can tell you that it was with great regret that we left those great interviews with the world's best experts uh, on the Gulag on the floor. And if you have a film program, we have great film from the greatest experts on the Gulag, which we've never been able to use. It's, it's because in comparison, when you hear the actual witness and somebody who went through this, the no expert can 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 match. It's it's it just doesn't look natural. Yeah, that's, what, that's what we learned. That's what we learned. Yeah, you need personal testimonies. Um, yes. to the hearts of the audience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and going back to what Paul mentioned a little bit earlier, he talked about um, these two levels, the victim level and the repressor level, both in the book and in the, in the film. And uh, I was really struck by a quote in Paul's book. Um, he says, instead of crimes without victims, Stalin somehow produced victims without criminals. And I thought that, um, you know, one of the messages of the book and the film is that we should remember the names of the victims, but we should also not forget the names of the, of the perpetrators. You know, we should remember who actually committed the crimes. And as a follow-up on that, um, I'm, I'm wondering about the circular composition of both the book and the film. So the book starts with Joseph Stalin and ends with Nikolai Yezhov, who was a secret police official, and he was in charge of the Great Purges, and he himself became its uh, victim. And the film opens and ends with the people commemorating Stalin as a great leader in Moscow. Uh, why did you decide to encircle the stories of female victims with this controversial contemporary memory about perpetrators? Well, the fact that this is a film about women and a book about women uh, was not planned on my part. Uh, what I did uh, to prepare for writing the book was to go through probably hundreds of memoirs and, and written accounts, some of which were simple, simply typescript, uh, you know, 20 page uh, memoirs. Uh, but as I went along, I saw that only women left behind the accounts we would be interested in, namely their personal life, their families. Um, 
their their experiences and these experiences we learned were um, typical for women and not not for men so the uh, I ended up um, before Mariana and I uh, made our plans uh, with a book about women but th- this was not uh, not planned but it definitely turned out just right it's one of those cases when when you start something feeling that it must be right and then it turns out right but you don't quite know logically why it is right and then you find an explanation you can find explanations but um, there there are many explanations why women first of all women live longer so um, there were many more live women uh, to talk to than men uh, secondly, um, women's experiences are not very widely um, known because everybody knows Solzhenitsyn, not everybody knows Solzhenitsyn's secretary, and she's in our film. Um, and thirdly, um, as a woman, you know, I'm, I'm interested in women's experiences and how women's experiences in the Gulag are di- were different from men's. And in fact, uh, women in the Gulag were slaves of slaves. That's a quotation from Shalamov's um, uh, short stories. Paul, would you like to add, or I can? Well, on the uh, two points. Uh, one point is that uh, we agreed uh, that in the selection of characters, they must be drawn from a wide uh, spectrum of Soviet life. Um, quite often, books about victims of the Gulag are about the intelligentsia. But the average victim of the gulag was was a peasant, or a, or a factory worker. Uh, so um, we have what we would call a small sample, five six people, and but we tried very hard to put in peasants, to put in factory workers, to put in intelligentsia, to put in musicians, etc. We had one princess, uh, and uh, and a. Um, um, uh, Abkhazian princess, yes, the, that's an incredible story. Each one uh, was an incredible story, and uh, it was very difficult to pack it all into a very sh- into forty three minutes or so. So the the story of the um, Abkhazian princess was incredible. The story of um, who else was incredible? Um, Mariana, remind me. Vera Hecker, who's a musician, um, you know, the, I mean, everybody's folklore story is amazing. She, she, she was a peasant who obtained her PhD and then saved, uh, rehabilitated 500 uh, uh, countrymen. So that's uh, another story. I mean, all of them, I think. They, um, not, not just um, Xenia. I mean, Yelena Bosnik is a nurse. So I don't know. It's... We had, uh, but we did get the cross section, and we didn't have this a film about. Um, Nadezhda Levitska, I think that's who you meant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she was the secretary to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and uh, uh, she helped him until until the last year of her life. She helped his she worked in, at his foundation, and uh, she helped him when he was alive, and then she ended up working in his foundation, which deals with giving the proceeds from sales of all his books, Gulag Archipelago and others, to the remaining victims and their families. Is she still working on that? 
No, she died uh, last year, unfortunately. She managed to, to make it to the premiere of Women of the Gulag in Moscow at the opening of the Moscow Film Festival. And uh, she was already in a wheelchair. They brought her, they gave her flowers, they gave her standing ovations. Something she deserved, but uh, all of them deserved that. But she actually saw that. She died um, last year. Um, I want to ask you, Mariana, about this actual process of interviewing this female um, survivors. Um, how did the interviews go? Uh, was it hard for them to speak about this uh, you know, tragic past? And uh, was it actually their first time telling the stories or not? Uh, for some of them, uh, it was the first time to tell the story. Um, uh, a few of them wrote books about it, like Adil wrote a book called I Cannot Forget, Nima Zabit. And uh, Fiocla wrote a book, and uh, Levitska didn't write a book, but she was uh, an activist. So almost all of them became activists. There is a fantastic Japanese word called ikigai, which basically means something that makes you um, get up every morning, you know, in order to do something you're inspired <laughs> to do. And it seems like all of them had this... Um, passion to do something um, and a lot of them became activists um, like uh, Adil who wrote books or Fokla who was rehabilitating her countrymen or Levitska who was working for the foundation in the 80s and 90s so um, I must say that they, they really wanted to talk about this and uh, um, it wasn't very difficult I think you just visit them one day you bring them a gift of cake, you, you drink tea with them, and you record one first bad interview. It's like a one bad first draft of any book. And then the next day, it's better. And so if you have a next day, then that's even better. That's how documentaries are made. The more time you spend, the the more the subject forgets that you're, that the camera is there. right? And, and they really wanted to tell the story. As it is in the film that one of our um, character says I probably lived so long uh, to tell this story she actually died um, at the age of 99 and a half uh, last year as well I did. I did, yeah. well I'm wondering about your own experience of interviewing um, this, um, you know, people in their old age and on these uh, heavy topics how did you manage it personally um, I had, uh, um, first of all, I had an amazing Russian crew, incredible Russian crew that are very, um, talented. I think each of them, the DP, um, you know, I had, I had, um, a few DPs that are very prominent in Russia. Um, so, um, Irina Shatalova and Sergei, um, uh, they, they are, one of them runs a documentary festival, um, others make films of their own. So very, very talented people. So they, they very well knew how to make um, the atmosphere the way so that you could. Um, and then my friend, Alessia Bondareva, that I started journalism with, she is amazing this way as well. So somehow, even if there were several people there, we just established bond, contact. And, um, you know, I think it's also because of the very, very talented people who just had the, the right energy. They, they had the right energy. How it was for me, I, I was driven to make, to make a film. When you're driven to make a film, you, you, you're fine. You just, you just have this task. And um, even if it's a difficult 
um, sometimes, you know, it was more difficult logistically. Once they started talking, I think you just, it's like writing a story, but through other people's lives. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering about the audience of this film and whether it was shown um, in Russia and other post-Soviet countries whose citizens actually experienced uh, Stalin's repressions and, you know, how this film was accepted by the local audience. The film uh, had had and is having a very, very good fate. Um, I would say, um, and actually I would like to thank the Academy for that. Uh, it was shortlisted for an Oscar two years ago, and uh, even making a top 10 versus top 5, which is Oscar nomination, Oscar shortlist, opened doors for us. It opened doors to festivals. It, it also made us note, notice um, in Russia, first by the so-called liberal uh, position media or liberal media. You know, there was um, also Voice of America at first, or Radio Freedom. Radio for Europe, and then slowly, slowly, station of Moscow, culture program, and then suddenly Russian television, Channel 2, buys it. They yet have to show it, <laughs> but they acquired I, it. They I keep acquired. waiting. I keep waiting. <laughs> it's um, supposed to be October 31st, correct? Correct. Um, we shall see. And then... Uh, the main Moscow festival, which is Mikhalkov's Moscow International Film Festival, accepted the film and it had its premiere uh, there. And then it was shown in Kazakhstan and in every former Russian Republic and all over, the, all, all over, you know, every small and big festival um, accepted it. And there were great reviews. I was looking for some newspapers and then I didn't find them today, but they were just um, tons of articles in English and in Russian. Um, once we got the Oscar shortlist, because I think there was a surprise because um, each country um, puts a lot of effort into promoting their film for the Academy Award. It's, it's very difficult. It's almost unattainable. And suddenly some unexpected subtitled short uh, Russian documentary gets shortlisted into top 10 Academy Award versus a multi-million, you know, 30 million feature that, was presented by the Minister of Culture, and I was a Russian citizen, so I even got a phone call from the Minister of Culture and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the Oscar campaign actually helped to bring the film back to Russia? Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, it's highly recommended to, to any filmmaker out there. <laughs> Mariana became a, an instant celebrity in Russia because you looked it up and you're the first Russian woman director in X years or ever to have gotten a film um, shortlisted, a documentary film. Is that correct? I think, uh, yes. I think there was a, there was a documentary, um, Russian documentary that won uh, an Academy, um, no, that was nominated for an Academy Award, but it was in the, 80, in the 80s. So um, since then, um, I think in, in documentary for, for women, um, I think there were, there were no women directors since then uh, in this documentary category. Um, but uh, so that, that all helped. All, all that is, is, is done actually to have the film out there. So it really, really helped the film. Yeah, the R Russian author cultural authorities and political authorities uh, really don't know what to do with this film. Because on the one hand, there is this uh, 
Stalin, great manager, great leader uh, direction. And on the other hand, it cannot be denied that there was the gulag and that, that each Russian family has some relative who was in the gulag. So uh, many people uh, would think that um, we were making a furtive film, trying to stay clear of authorities who were against making that film, but that wasn't our experience. In fact, uh, the fact that it supposedly will be on network, Russian network TV, uh, simply shows that uh, Putin in particular is playing sort of both sides. He can say, look, we have on our network TV this film about the horrors of the gulag, but our bookstores are full of, um, of uh, favorable books about Stalin. So uh, that, that was our experience and we really didn't know what to expect when we began. Mariana, would you like to pick up on that? Uh, I actually brought a calendar with me, but I don't know if anybody can see it. It's, um, it's yes. a 2020, uh, does it say 2020? It should say 2020 somewhere. But it's 2020 uh, calendar. Yeah, it's calendar 2020. Stalin, the forgotten heritage. And it's basically, you know, it was picked up in one of the major bookstores um, last year in Moscow. And there are so many books and so many. So it's basically, this is not, it's not like in the situation with some of the Nazi history when, um, you know, there is no, there, there is some things that are outlawed. You know, there are books that glorify him. Uh, there are shelves that, be, you know, of books that say, you know, Stalin, Stalin is Jesus Christ or how Stalin overcame corruption or you know, you, did he really overcome corruption? So it, it is this uh, dual, dual situation that on one hand, there is this going on and it's not outlawed and it should be. Um, and on the other hand, uh, there is a monument to Solzhenitsyn that is opening up and Vladimir Putin is visiting the monument. So it's this duality that is happening, it's maddening. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There's this duality in uh, in what authorities do, and there's also a duality in what people, you know, how they view the past, how they view the Soviet past. And you know, you you made it perfectly clear in the in the movie that there are so many people still commemorating Stalin and you know, placing flowers in his grave. And it's uh, it's interesting, you know, how 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 we should interpret this. Um, and also the way history is taught in, in, in Russian schools. I, I read some uh, school books that are that are presented to students uh, in, in the you know in the past four years. And in fact, it's not at all what we used to read in the 1990s in Russia when when it was when truth started coming out. Now it's uh, embellished, really embellished. Well, I hope the movie will be a must-see in, in schools, maybe. In Russian schools, you know. So far, we are selling the film or showing the film across the universities all over the world, except for in Russia. Everywhere, hundreds of universities, from Australia to Canada, from uh, UK to, you know, to, to Asia, to uh, South Korea, to, you know, to to countries where it matters because it really matters in South Korea because they have a threat of North Korea. And um, Hong Kong, remember. Hong Kong, we, should, we, we receive the words in these kinds of countries, you know, like in Hong Kong where there is a threat of um, communist uh, 
um, take over when, you know, especially in South Korea, where there's a threat of North Korea and so forth, you know, in, in the Baltic republics and in, in Ukraine. And you know, so everywhere, but, um, but in Russia. But I noticed that uh, your film was shown um, as part of Aeroflot Russian Airlines in flight. Yes, amazing. Just <laughs> <laughs> to Airflot, maybe they need it here and not there. It's incredible. That is true. Airflot bought the film, and uh, um, but the interesting part about Airflot that I started getting messages, um, like personal messages or, or messages through somebody saying that you know something straight. Somebody must have. Uh, broken into their network and put in this very unlikely film you know it was they were really serious you know that that it was you know let's not talk about it publicly on facebook for example because they might see and remove it or something like that because there's an it was a longer version also of the film that had a little bit more but um you know i don't see anything um too too daring in the film really but it was strange that some uh people thought that it would be an unlikely movie but we um, did this on the basis of a, of a rather long contract, so there was no question about its legality. And I don't know how many uh, American Russian specialists wrote us and said, we didn't know anything about the film until uh, we saw it on Airflow. So that was a, a very good distribution system. For people who travel to Europe. Yeah. <laughs> I actually told my mother to to watch it last spring when she was, uh, you know, she was planning to to come here, but she she had to cancel her Ireland flight because of the pandemic. Um, okay, so we have um, a couple of minutes, um, you know, to finish um, this session with my questions, and then we can turn over to the audience. Um, and you know, one of my last questions, I just want to ask um, Marianne and Paul about your future projects or like work in progress that you're doing now? Marianne. Uh, sure. Um, not that every director talks about future future projects, but uh, I think that ours is um, very interesting. It actually has to do with Hong Kong. And uh, when I was in Hong Kong last time, I started interviewing the protesters that were uh, fighting or, you know, protesting um, against the um, mainland China takeover. And uh, we were, you know, I, I recorded, you know, we found some, some people, you know, and I, I was also interested in, in, in women and in younger women, you know, it would be, it was kind of a continuation of Women of the Gulagans in some ways, um, because it was social, social issue subject. And then um, I filmed it in, in, in October and November, and then I returned to Hollywood, and then I was going to fly back to China in January. And so I bought a lot of masks, you know, because something was already starting up, up there, you know, just to give out. And that did not happen. And um, we uh, brought in actors, which is very interesting. We auditioned some amazing Asian American actors who, in order to protect the identity of these protesters, because if anybody knows what's happening in Hong Kong, it is uh, pretty um, grim right now, the situation. So a lot of these um, people um, are afraid for their safety. And so to protect their identity, we auditioned some actors um, and uh, it's working very well. It reminds me of uh, Godard's uh, La Chinoise, uh, the movie, and uh, some amazing um, documentaries that were done this way. 
like uh, Citizen Nine uh, by Alex Gibney. He's a very, very talented American um, documentarian where he um, used um, an actress uh, to play the prostitute that was uh, involved with a high official. So, and then at the end of the, so that's what I'm doing. This is my first experience working uh, with actors, even though um, I'm three generations theater actors and directors, but this is something that I'm starting. Long answer. From my perspective, uh, what is going on in Hong Kong is something that we need to pay attention to. This is a modern contemporary example of communist takeover. We have very good histories of, of the communist takeover of Czechoslovakia, Hungary, etc. So um, this is a, too, too good an opportunity to forego. Um, we were concerned a great deal about the, um, uh, the reluctance of subjects to reveal their faces and identity. So we're very excited about this notion of using really first-rate actresses or actors who um, can play the roles. And so we, we already have, what, five or ten audition tapes? I can't recall the number. Sure. I mean, it's, it's a process. It's, it's something we do here in Los Angeles. Okay, thanks for answering my questions. So we can turn to the uh, audience um, and we are turning back to discussing the book and the film. Um, so my first question is from uh, Harald Marcuse. Um, he is wondering about the post-Gulag transition. Um, what happened after Stalin's death and then how were these women treated under Khrushchev in the late 1950s uh, and on through the 60s and 70s and beyond until they uh, told their stories. You know, what enabled them to do that? Did the interviews cover that topic? Um, well, let me say a word, uh, and that is that in, in the Gulag population, the, the Gulag actually consisted of two populations. One was the population of actual criminals. The other were, were the political prisoners. And of course, we focused only on the political prisoners. In fact, um, most of the camps were taken over by criminal bands. And so if you want to trace uh, Soviet or Russian criminality back to its origins, uh, the origins go back into the gulag. And there's a, a large literature on uh, how criminals... Uh, directed and controlled the, the gulag. Uh, so there, there were not significant releases from the gulag until Stalin's death. And in fact, about a week after Stalin's death, there was the first major release of prisoners from uh, the gulag. And one reason for this early release decision was that the gulag turned out to be highly unprofitable. So it was, it was actually subtracting resources from, from the economy. So the prisoners who were, who were released the last were political prisoners. And I think the last political prisoners were released um, probably around 1955 or 1956. Uh, when uh, Russian historians started to uh, study the gulag. The first accounts that came out suggested that the gulag was fine. It was just a place for criminal elements. 
uh, it was only later that this narrative uh, was overturned and it was realized that most of the Gulag prisoners were actually political prisoners. So that's, that's a little bit of background about the release. Mariana? Um, of course, they talked about it. Because, you know, but once you're out of pr- prison, the life is, is, is uh, full of difficulties. And for sure, it's described in many memoirs, um, that, that you know, women's memoirs. You know, if you read, there are many books written on the subject, you know, that are memoirs. But this was basically a short film. The reason we made it 40 minutes was, was to qualify for the Academy Awards. Um, we, we wanted to film, the film to be um, known this way. And uh, then we made the director's cut, which is the cut that you saw. Um, so there, there was really no room. You know, We just showed the tip of the iceberg, the actual um, testimony while, you know, about how this was going. But yes, of course, you know, after, after they got released, they couldn't find jobs. They still needed uh, to, write, to write petitions, you know, to rehabilitate their honest names. Some were never rehabilitated. Some got their um, forgiveness uh, decades later. So it's really, um, and, then, and then when they came back, you, you, you described, Paul, some, you know, horrible scene between, between the children, right? When they would come back and the children would not really recognize them or, or accept them because they remember them beautiful, lively women. And then they, they would see old, um, old, old women with no teeth and so forth. And so. they'd been taught all their life that their parents were criminals. Right, exactly. So, and they, there was there was this uh, um, lack of, you know, la- lack of connection that 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 probably broke their hearts. But but with my with my uh, characters, a lot of them never created any families. Um, just just when we um, when we were filming, uh, women who were arrested and set in prisons were already, you know. In the in the late twenties and thirties and the twenties, they all died. So um, our characters were arrested and, and and put in prisons when they were teenagers. So many of them were not married, and after they got released, many of them never married and never had children. And it's related to women's health. It's related to mental health and all all these kinds of things. So at least half of our heroines never had families. I think it's even more than that. I think it's uh, one out of six. I would say Dill had children. Adil had children, but also, uh, well, Vera Hector had, had children, and then Ksenia had children. No, 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 they, they had children. Okay. Were, yeah. But then it'd be about half. Right, yeah. Yeah, the challenges people were facing after the release were really huge. However, you know, they were, they were free now, but you know, their life was full of difficulties. Well, it was very important for them to uh, be rehabilitated which was the bureaucratic process. And one of our characters, Fiocla, devoted her life after the Gulag to rehabilitating people who could not fill out these complicated forms. Oh, well, you, simply illiterate. Yeah. If, if without rehabilitation, you really didn't have a right to a job, you really didn't have a right to a place of um, uh, permanent residence and so forth. So, and the, and the rehabilitation documents read... Uh, you are rehab- rehabilitated for absence of a crime. Right. That, was, that was the most common, for absence of a crime. So you spent 20 years in the gulag for absence of a crime. 
And I don't, and the document didn't say anything about we're sorry about this or anything. It was just, just you're rehabilitated for absence of a crime. Yeah, the state was granting rehabilitation instead of you know, saying sorry for that. I have a next question from Catherine Estim. Uh, one of the survivors outlived her work digging uranium ore. Her story is so poignant as it combines for the audience both the personal and collective trauma, as well as the terrible price paid by the environment. Can you comment on the importance of the damage to the environment in your film? Mariana, that's yours. I think that's a subject for another film. I, I worked on so many environmental films in my, in my life, and I actually even was a senior editor for Greenpeace USA at some point. Um, uh, you know, all I can say that the Elena Posnik, who worked on the uranium mines, is the only one who is still surviving, uh, who still lives. So uh, she survived it all. Um, I think that uh, I can also say that um, the the um, the gulag labor was not really very economically profitable. That's for sure. You know, aside from uh, some environmental, you know, issues, and, and, and it was it was really not economically viable uh, for cities were built beyond the Arctic Circle, for example, and uh, that was, you know completely economical disaster. Um, I'm not the only one who's talking about it. It's from Anne Applebaum's uh, Pulitzer winning book, but also it's a well-known fact. And people are leaving these places now. The ones right. that yield. Okay. Um, another question from Sarah Welt. Um, so she says, I'm a scholar of childhood and was moved by the stories of young people in the Gulag in the film, um, as one of them also was. Can you say any more about the experiences of young people you uncovered? Sometimes as a scholar of childhood or the history of childhood, it can be hard to find evidence of the history of childhood. Um, well, from the book, uh, there are cases of mothers being arrested. And as the NKVD came to pick up the mother um, the children would be put in another car and driven to an NKVD orphanage. Uh, in our film, um, very much depends upon the definition of child because we're talking about women who were arrested and uh, put in the gulag uh, who were 18 or 19, so I would regard them as, as children. And But if you were like 10, 12, you went into the NKVD uh, orphanage. Uh, uh, Mariana, do you have any examples that you can recall? Um, I think Adil was, uh, was the youngest, but also with uh, Ksenia, she was taken in with her five brothers as, uh, as the uh, yeah. parents were... Um, uh, you know, were, I think, killed, right? You know, I think that uh, fathers were executed and Vokla uh, was taken in with two sisters. Sisters were older. So they were, you know, the, the Ksenia was with, with kids and she was the oldest uh, sister. So she was uh, talking about being with five boys. Um, and they were just uh, well-off peasants. They were just peasants who had maybe a cow or 
you know, some chickens and, and, and were, you know, they were just uh, striped of all their possessions, put in a, in a one-way train and brought into the middle of, of the woods to dig uh, holes and, and live there and build, uh, build a factory. And half of the factories in Russia are built this way were built this way in the 30s and 40s, right? Yeah, it's important to note that uh, a the so-called unknown gulag, which was a special settlement for peasants, uh, what Mariana is talking about are examples of that. And in the this campaign to deport peasants, the uh, sentence was basically not for the father or the mother, it was for the family. So the family was being deported and the family and family members did not have a right to leave that special settlement. Uh, some children could leave the special settlement only upon graduation, and that is if they showed some sign of uh, social uh, usefulness. Right, and there was no really uh, fence, or there were some guards, but they were not really, because there, there was no way to run. It was in the middle of the woods. They had no no way to run, so it was a prison. But it had no. It wasn't fenced from from how they, from what they told us. Yeah, the oldest woman you interviewed was ninety six, I think. Xenia, she was a peasant exile. Um, I'm wondering if you had a a longer interview with her about her experience. We interviewed her several times, and in the last two interviews, uh, she lost her sight completely. She was completely blind, and uh, we didn't use those interviews because even though it's striking to, to talk to somebody, you know, we didn't want her to look pitiful. We wanted her to look um, strong and empowered because these are the strongest women I've, I've met probably in, in years, in many, many years. We showed the film to uh, former state secretary, George Schultz, and his first reaction was how powerful, how strong these women are coming from a man who was 99 years old, who is 99 years old and is very strong himself. So um, it was interesting. Um, I have another question um, about the location of the filming sites. It's the question from Katerina Kurteva. So these uh, filming sites are very remote. Uh, were they off limits for filming? Did they? Uh, did the crew have to get permits from the government? What about radiation exposure at Kolomar, uh, the Budukchak camp? I think I know Katerina. She's a filmmaker in Moscow. Uh, no, we didn't have any permits. <laughs> we we went to the Ural Mountains uh, and uh, we. Um, uh, we went to this settlement called Martyush, where you know nobody could ever ask us for for any permits. And uh, I went with um, uh, amazing Russian filmmakers, uh, Nastya Tarasova and Irina Shatalova. And so um, they, uh, you know, we, you know, we we were filming as locals. So and 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 uh, um, we stumbled just just accidentally was we stumbled. Um, uh, on onto this procession, you know, it was just an accident that happens in documentary films. They were doing like um, uh, a religious procession dedicated to erecting a cross uh, to commemorate the victims of repressions. Just absolute accidental coincidence. So that was filmed, and then uh, we came back there a couple of times to film the uh, to film the surrounding, uh, you know, to 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 film more interviews, and then. Um, 
um, you know, the, the aphasia also, you know, and then the, the, um, so no, we didn't have, and I think even, even on the red square, we didn't use any, uh, permits because we didn't have a tripod. <laughs> so there was no, yeah, we just did cinema verite. <laughs> There's actually one quick question about this, you know, polit political situation. Uh, it's a question from Rita Rayleigh. Um, she's wondering about the statistics of public approval of Stalin um, and what's the consensus now. But we um, we covered this a little bit. But I'm just wondering if you want to talk a little bit more about, you know, how people in in Russia and post-Soviet countries um, view this tragic past. Uh, why why they still commemorate Stalin? when we have so many testimonies from the, from the victims. It looks well, like, one, yeah. one should not underestimate the power of the Stalin myth. And uh, we had a number of cases of, from Russia, by the way, of older people who uh, accused Mariana of lies. This was all a setup. This, this couldn't be. And one uh, item of proof they would uh, offer was the story of Fjoklo working in the swamps in freezing weather who uh, would wake up with a frog in her mouth. The frog uh, uh, got into the mouth for, for, for warmth. And um, uh, one critic says, it, it's all a lie. No one can wake up with a frog in their mouth. But this is absolutely true, correct? It, uh, Mariana did... did in, in public showings, did people come up to you and say, what you've shown is a lie? Uh, it, I heard it uh, mostly while I was making the film because it was very interesting. I was interviewing editors uh, when I was um, in Russia and I, I first wanted to bring, that, to bring in a, uh, a Russian editor. And before I found the very talented Irina Volkova and then uh, Lenny Feinstein. So I had one uh, Russian editor and one um, American editor, which, which worked perfectly because they both worked so that the film is understandable, understood by Russian and American audience. One Russian um, editor, um, interview, interview, interviewee um, came to, to my office in Moscow and said, I would like to, to cut the film, but there are two problems with it. First um, problem is how, uh, first of all, you know, why, why are you even mentioning Stalin? Because all crimes were committed by the uh, me median and, uh, you know, lower managements on, on location. He didn't even know about most of this. So that shocked me quite a bit. And the, and the second thing he said, how, how do we convince the audience without editing that they're telling the truth? They're old people. They're completely, they're forgetting things that they're saying. How, how, do, you, how do you plan to convince people that these uh, witnesses are telling the truth? And so um, he didn't get the job. But uh, it really stuck in my mind that, that some people would be asking those questions um, versus, uh, you know, when you hear Holocaust survivors um, and there are um, hundreds of Holocaust films and very few um, Gulag films, um, those questions are not asked. And that's, you know, that's, that's the way the history is turning out. There, there was no... Um, there, there was no Nuremberg for, for Gulag. 
And speaking of the archives that you also used for the film, um, there is a question from Marianella Maldonado. How did you manage to find the archival material for the film? And also, I, I read in one of your interviews, you mentioned that um, you are an archival film researcher. So maybe you can explain what this means. Uh, this is how I make my bread and butter. Uh, you know, we, we, as filmmakers, we need to eat every day, put bread on the table. And uh, this is what I started with in uh, uh, maybe 20 years ago. I uh, worked on several big films. Uh, one of them is Inconvenient Truth with Al Gore and with Rory Kennedy, uh, Last Days in Vietnam. Uh, the first one won an Academy Award. The second one was nominated. And, and then there were three or four films that won Oscar nominations or of one Academy Awards films like Samsara. And um, being a film researcher, a footage researcher, means uh, that you both uh, research the facts behind the film, but also find the best footage for the film possible. I worked on maybe two, 200 Hollywood films and numerous television shows, and I'm working on several right now, like a big Netflix show on um, dictators uh, of the 20th century, which is uh, a match. Um, and so uh, for this film, it was very, very different because uh, I thought I was an archival pro. And uh, for the film about the Gulag, I stumbled into an archival desert. There was absolutely nothing uh, film-wise. You know, there were photographs of uh, our characters before and after, which we used. They were drawings of some of our characters and there are drawings that exist in in uh, in the Gulag history, of course, there is Sofia Kirsanovska. If anybody heard heard about her, the very famous, horrible, um, draw, you know, great drawings, but but absolutely horrific events. Um, Kirsanovska, yes, and uh, um, so there are drawings and 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 pictures before and after, but there is really no film, because as opposed to Nazis in during the um, World War II, uh, communists or KGB was not documenting anything for posterity. Or if they were, it's not available to us. And, and um, if anything was documented, it was documented as propaganda videos. Look how we're reforming our, you know, criminals. You know, look how they're eating, look how they're getting medical help. So these are few, you know, clips or, you know, film reels that are very well known. And uh, they're used and reused, and uh, they're known Getty images and, and Russian archives. But really, there is nothing rare and unique in, in you know in, in, in terms of finding anything that has not been shown. Just because um, they were trying to um, erase the tracks, the, the trace of this, instead of documenting for posterity. I have uh, one final question um, to wrap up. Um, so several audience members would like to know if there are plans for wider streaming access to this film and if there are good ways to stay informed about uh, Mariana and Paul's next project. Um, well, you will say something too, right? Because uh, I think I'll on... Uh, forget. Go ahead. My film, is, uh, my film company is called May Films. It's just my initials and... Uh, Usually, you know, I, I, I post information about projects on that site. About, and also there is a site, womenofthegulag.com, where I post uh, information. There was no, um, we did not sell the film to Netflix partially because it's, it's it, you know, for the moment we want to go ahead with educational distribution first. 
But as far as uh, Russian showing goes, we are promised uh, a showing on Russian uh, television, Channel 1. Uh, no, not Channel 1, Channel 2, Canal Russia. And uh, we are promised that this will be shown either at the end of this month, but there was no, you know, there is no, it's not advertised, so it's not going to be, or in the next two months, because they have a contract with us for a year, which is going to expire. Uh, so my my next hope, big hope, is uh, Russian television and also Russian streaming, and they will show the forty minute version. Uh, Paul, what do you think? Just uh, I I judge the ultimate success of this uh, project on whether we indeed make it onto Russian network television. I think then we have an audience of something like twenty million. And uh, that would be, I would say, our biggest accomplishment. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that the powers that be will actually allow it to be shown. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mariana, director of the film Women of the Gulag. Thank you, Paul, for, uh, for your book, Women of the Gulag, Portraits of Five Remarkable Lives. It was a fascinating discussion. I'm also grateful to Karsi Wolf Center and Emily Zinn for showing this uh, documentary to our Santa Barbara community and for helping to put this event together. And um, thank you, virtual audience, for your questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.